Thanks, Kate, for leading, and let me add my welcome. Great to see you here, especially if you are visiting us uh, this morning. Uh, it be helpful to keep that passage open on your phone or in a Bible. Uh, we'll be working through it together. Um, if you are visiting us, you've come into a, a series where we're working through the Sermon on the Mount, some of Jesus' most famous teaching, um, un- undeniably, I think, the greatest sermon ever given, certainly much better than mine, certainly more remembered than mine. Um, and so we've, we've come to uh, a passage in the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to hear more of Jesus' teaching in this um, great sermon, come back uh, next week and in the, the coming weeks. Uh, but let me say a prayer as we come to look at this teaching. Father God, we thank you that we have the great privilege of being able to, to meet together and freely uh, open up the Bible, read it in uh, our heart language, in a language we can understand, that we can hear these words of Jesus spoken uh, so many years ago, yet still so fresh and relevant uh, for our lives today. Please give us open ears to hear. Please give us open hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. In his book, The Hundred, Michael Hart lists out who he considers to be the hundred most influential people in history. Michael Hart puts Muhammad at the top of the list. Uh, Second is Isaac Newton, and third is Jesus. Now, you might be surprised at that ordering of people, but it's worth hearing how Michael Hart justifies his choice. He says that the criterion on which he ranked people was simply the influence that they had on others' lives. And he says this, I am neither a Muslim nor a Christian, but on my observation, Muhammad has far more influence on the lives of Muslims than does Jesus on the lives of Christians. And he gives one example And it's this teaching that we're looking at in the reading this morning. Love your enemies. Michael Hart says, it is the most radical ethical teaching ever given. If it were followed, there would be no question about Jesus being number one on the list. But according to Michael Hart's observation, it's not followed. He says that this teaching remains an intriguing but basically untried suggestion. But what was Jesus commanding? Does he want us to all be doormats? Verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Does he want us to let people walk all over us? Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Does he want us all to be a soft touch? Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Surely in our world today, our cutthroat world, Jesus doesn't expect us to actually obey these verses. You know, if we followed them rigidly, we'd all end up battered and naked and wandering the streets without a penny to our name. Many have rejected Jesus' teaching. Oh, they say it sounds high and lofty, but it is totally impractical. Now, we do need to do some work to understand what Jesus actually meant but we must avoid softening the radical nature of what Jesus is saying. Because in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is responding to religious leaders who were doing just that. They were softening the demands of God's law. Six times in this section of the sermon, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. 
Did you notice those phrases? They come twice in our reading this morning. Verse 38 and verse 43. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. In other words, you've heard how the religious leaders soften and distort God's law, but I'm telling you what it really means. Jesus' teaching here is radical, no question. It's unique amongst the religions of the world, but Jesus was not making a suggestion. He was giving a command, a command he expected his followers to obey. Love your enemies. We need to think through the details of what that means and the specific questions that it raises. But the central command is clear, isn't it? Love your enemies. So I hope that over the next 20 minutes or so, we'll understand what Jesus was teaching because it's the only hope for our fractured world. So look again at verse 38. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. The story goes there was an Irish boxer who became a street preacher. And one day, some local thugs came and were heckling him. And one of them stepped forward and uh, took a swing at the preacher, hit him on the cheek and knocked him down. The preacher got up, uh, pointed to his other cheek. The thug went forward again, punched him, knocked him down. And as the preacher got up, he rolled up his sleeves and said, the Lord gave me no further instructions and (laughs) began dealing out a flurry of punches. That is not what Jesus was talking about. But what was he talking about? We need to realize, I think, he's not talking here about physical assaults. Uh, My daughter, Katie, has just started doing karate lessons, so I'm learning a little bit about hand-to-hand combat. Uh, And... She is taught when someone's attacking you, uh, you uh, try and hit them in the nose or the solar plexus. Um, They don't use that language for four-year-olds, but, you know, here. Or you kick them in the shins or in the privates. Uh, You don't try and hit them on the cheek. You certainly don't try and slap them on the cheek. To slap someone on the cheek is an insult. It's, It's an assault Not so much on our physical safety, but an assault on our honor. So this isn't strictly a metaphor here. Um, Someone may actually slap you on the cheek, but can you see it's broader than that specific example? Jesus is talking about when you suffer a personal affront, when someone assaults your honor, when someone insults you. When that happens, Jesus says you're to respond in a way that is very different to the norm. I think there are two natural responses to being mistreated, insulted. There's the vindictive response and there's the passive response. So the vindictive response would say, you fight back. If they hit you, you hit them back. If they insult you, you pay them back. And this seems to be what the religious leaders in Jesus' day were advocating. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that is a quote from the Old Testament law. But they are words spoken into a judicial context. It was a rule for a court of law. It's the principle of measured retribution. So after a fair trial, if someone's found guilty, the judge makes sure that the punishment fits the crime. If they've knocked your tooth out, they're not going to lose their arm. They're going to lose a tooth. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It was a law to make sure that justice was done because it was based on the character of God who is perfectly just. 
And it was a law to actually restrain personal vengeance because when I know that justice will be done, I don't need to take matters into my own hands. But the religious leaders had turned this law completely upside down. They'd taken this law for legal situations and were applying it to personal relationships. So if someone insults you, they were saying, you have every right to insult them back. If someone slaps you on the face, you go ahead and slap them back. We might say today, if someone pushes you on the way out of church, you jolly well push them back. They were basically saying you have every right to retaliate, to take revenge. And Jesus says, no, no. My followers are to live a very different way. There's to be no retaliation, no tit for tat. God will make sure that justice is done. You don't need to take matters into your own hands. You're free from the need to take personal revenge. You're free to love. So we're not to respond vindictively. Does that mean we go for the other response and respond completely passively? Is that what Jesus is advocating? It seems to be, doesn't it? If someone slaps you in the cheek, we'll turn the other cheek. You know, hit me again. I'm still breathing. Insult me again. Go ahead. I can take it. What's interesting is Jesus doesn't always seem to follow his own teaching. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying Jesus is a hypocrite. Jesus is the most consistent person ever. He teaches, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And when he's been unjustly condemned and nailed to a cross as a common criminal, what does he do? He prays for those who are killing him. Father, forgive them. Jesus practiced what he preached. What I'm saying is, if we look at how Jesus responded to insults and mistreatment, it might help us understand what he was saying about turning the other cheek. So in the hours leading up to the crucifixion, Jesus is falsely accused. He's spat on and mocked. He's flogged. He's hit on the head again and again. And at no point does Jesus retaliate or fight back. At no point does he curse those who are mistreating him. As I said, he prays for them. But for the most part, he is silent. He takes it. And in the book of 1 Peter, it says that in doing this, Jesus left us an example that we might endure suffering as he did without retaliation. But there is one point in all of that suffering uh, during his trial when Jesus responds to the high priest and one of the officials standing nearby slaps Jesus in the face. It's literally what he's talking about. And Jesus doesn't literally turn the other cheek and you know, invite another slap. He replies to the official, if I said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus didn't literally turn the other cheek. He wasn't entirely passive. There wasn't any vindictiveness or hatred in his response, but he does call the guy out. If I said nothing wrong, why did you strike me? Now, I don't know why Jesus responds in that way at that time, but I think it suggests he didn't have in mind a totally passive response. You know, just take it on the chin, let the heat hits keep coming. And there are certainly other occasions in Jesus' earlier life when he's mistreated, when he's insulted, 
and he responds, you know, when he's accused of being possessed by the devil. And Jesus responds quite firmly to that accusation. So I don't think Jesus is teaching here a totally passive response to being insulted or mistreated. Here's what I think he's saying. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he's saying that we are to do something positive to put the relationship on a new footing. That we're to do something positive to put the relationship on a new footing. So I'm not turning the other cheek so that you can hit me again. You might do that, but that's not my intention. I'm turning the other cheek to give you the chance to kiss me. So when I'm insulted, when I'm mistreated, I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to fight back. I'm going to forgive. But, but neither am I just going to let you keep on mistreating me. That would not be loving to you. I'm going to turn the other cheek. I, I want relationship. That there's forgiveness on my side. There needs to be repentance on yours. To start over. A fresh start. Reconciliation. I don't know what you think about that, but I think it's more true to the character of Jesus himself. Yes, he was gentle, but he was no pushover. He was compassionate and courageous. He was tough and tender. So I think if we're going to follow Jesus, it means if someone wrongs us, we'll say, what you did was wrong, but I forgive you, and any time you're ready to come back into a decent relationship, I'm here. The vindictive response says fight back. The passive response says walk away. Jesus says turn the other cheek. Forgive. As far as it depends on you, seek peace, reconciliation, a fresh start. I listened to a podcast this week about the Abdullahs, a family in Sydney. Uh, you may have heard about them back in 2020, February 2020. Uh, four of their children... Uh, were walking with their cousin to buy ice creams. And a drunk driver flew off the road and plowed through the group of kids, killing all but one. It's every parent's worst nightmare. But the Abdullahs shocked the world by responding very quickly, uh, saying that they forgave the driver, that they felt no hatred towards him. Listening to Layla and Danny speak was incredibly moving and challenging. They said how to hate the driver is not who they are, that because of their faith, they forgive. They still wanted justice to be done. They wanted a fair trial, but in their hearts, they felt no hatred. In fact, they felt love towards the driver, and they pray for him. They also said that forgiveness is not only a gift to him, to the driver, but has been a gift to them. It's enabled them to, to heal, to get through the anger, not to feel the hatred and resentment that they might have done. And, and I think that's really important. But when you refuse to forgive, when you hold on to bitterness and you seek revenge, you're still under the control of whatever wrong has been done to you. That, that evil has overcome you. You don't overcome evil with evil. You overcome evil with good. At the time of the incident, a Guardian columnist wrote, wherever that love and forgiveness comes from, millions of people are pondering the beautiful, provocative mystery of it all. Where did it come from? 
the Abdullahs would say it came from Jesus. And not only from his teaching or his example. The love and forgiveness that they were able to show came from the love and forgiveness that they've been shown. Look again at verse 43. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying, loving your enemies is the kind of loving that God does. If we love our enemies, then we show that we're his children. Loving our enemies doesn't make us children of God. It simply demonstrates that we are. So just think about the love that God shows to his enemies. Verse 45 says, He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God doesn't just love the people who love him. Every day God gives life and breath and food and health, enjoyment and friendship to people who hate him, people who deny his existence, people who use his name only as a swear word. God loves them. He shows kindness to them. They don't deserve it. They don't thank him for it. But his generosity towards them is not dictated by their attitude to him. And as God's children, Jesus says, we're to reflect the love of our Father in heaven. So verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. See, it's not about what they deserve. It's not about our rights. It's not about the impact those actions will have on our time or our money. It's about reflecting our Father's love. Love that is reckless and extravagant and abundantly generous. Verse 46 and 7 challenge us as to whether our love is really any different to the love of those around us. Jesus says, verse 46, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Everyone knows how to love, Jesus says. There's nothing particularly special about love per se, Even rotten people, even tax collectors know how to love each other. There's nothing out of this world about loving those who love you. There's nothing particularly special about loving those who you like. What's supernatural is loving those you don't like, your enemies. Some say this kind of love is impractical. I'd say it's beautiful. But it's only possible when you've experienced the kind of love for yourself. When you realize that you were God's enemy and yet he loved you and adopted you as his child. The supreme demonstration of God's love is the cross. Kate um, quoted this earlier in the book of Romans. The apostle Paul says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. 
But God demonstrates his love in this. While we were still sinners, still God's enemies, Christ died for us. And the Apostle John says, this is how we know what love is. If we're looking for a definition of love, this is it. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is true love. Self-sacrificial, unprompted, undeserved love. The Christian person sees, I was God's enemy. In my sinful nature, I still am. I don't deserve his love. Yet God sent his son, Jesus, to take my place on the cross. To take the punishment I do deserve so that I can be forgiven. So I can be adopted as his own beloved child. I was an enemy Now I'm God's child. That thought is like dynamite in in the heart of anyone who really believes it. I was an enemy. Now I'm God's child. I can love those who don't deserve it because I know how undeserving I am of God's love. I can forgive those who've wronged me because I know how much I've been forgiven. I I can give sacrificially to others because I know how much I've received. I can seek peace and reconciliation despite the cost because I know what it costs God to be reconciled to me. Until you are amazed by God's love for you, and until your heart is melted by his love, you'll never be able to love others in the way he requires. You've got to experience unmerited love in order to be able to show unmerited love. When our oldest daughter, Moya, was a baby, and I was a new dad, I had to get used to going out with her, and the fact that Complete strangers felt no inhibition in talking to us. Well, they were mostly talking to Moya, but I felt some obligation to respond because she wasn't going to. And one of the things that people would often say, strangers on the street, would say, well, there's no mistaking who your dad is. Uh, Corinne's mum was particularly adamant. Apparently, it's the shape of the eyes. Uh, Personally, can't see it that much, but... Um, She would say, there's no mistaking who your dad is. There's so much of Ben in her. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to have said of us as followers of Jesus? That there's no mistaking who your father is. There's so much of God in you. Your love reflects his love. James and Barbara were an older couple, couple at the church that Corinne and I went to in London. And... Uh, They used to live in Nigeria. They worked for an organization called Navigators, where they were um, doing gospel ministry amongst students. The area that they lived in had a strong and radical Muslim population, and the Muslims did not like what James and Barbara were doing, teaching the Bible, sharing Jesus. One night, a group of Muslims came to the house and attacked them. Barbara was raped. James was shot in the face, had to have... Serious corrective surgery, still um, one side of his face um, disfigured. 
When we knew them, James and Barbara were still going to Nigeria, to the same people, still sharing the love of Jesus with them. There's no mistaking who their father is because they love like he does. Michael Hart said on his observation, Muhammad has more influence in the lives of Muslims than Jesus does in the lives of Christians. He says this teaching remains an intriguing but basically untried suggestion. I'd like Michael Hart to meet the Abdullahs. I'd like him to meet James and Barbara. But what about us? if we count ourselves followers of Jesus, if, if someone looked at our lives, our life as a community here at Barney's, how influential would they find Jesus to be? How much of our Father's character would they see displayed? Jesus said, love your enemies. Who is it that you need to love? And how? Let me lead us in prayer. And maybe just a moment in quiet to reflect. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for loving us even when we were your enemies. Thank you for making it possible for each one of us to be adopted as a child of God. Please make your love real to us. Make your love so real to us that we are empowered, that our attitude to ourselves and to others is, is radically altered, and we're enabled to do what you call us to do, to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek, to forgive, to seek peace. Show us how we need to respond to you. Show us who we need to love and what you're calling us to do. In your precious name we pray. Amen.